0: Welcome to the podcast of Greenlight Bookstore. This is the quarantine season. While Greenlight's two bookstore locations in Brooklyn are closed to the public as we do our part to stop the spread of coronavirus, Greenlight still strives for ways to create connection around books. Thanks to the gracious efforts of authors and interviewers scattered across the country, we've taken our events programming online, hosting live readings, conversations, and audience questions via Zoom. Our podcasts this season are a record of those intimate conversations between thinkers and creators, speaking from separate rooms, and a window into the ways that ideas and stories connect us all. Enjoy the conversation and visit GreenlightBookstore.com for more.
1: Good evening and welcome to tonight's online author event with Greenlight Bookstore. We're excited to host tonight's event with Emily Temple, launching her new book, The Lightness. She'll be talking with Taya Obretz so you're in for an excellent time. Before we start, I just want to say a huge thanks to everyone for making this happen and to all of you for showing up. Greenlights to our storefronts are currently closed, but our community is still here. And we're grateful for your support and for the chance to make space for conversation and connection. We are recording tonight's event, so look for video or audio versions on our website and social channels later on. Tonight's featured book, The Lightness, is available for sale from greenlightbookstore.com. Though our stores are closed, we're working with our supplier warehouse for fast direct-to-home shipping. If you care about supporting the careers of authors and the ongoing existence of independent bookstores, buying tonight's featured book is a great way to show your support. Our interviewer for this evening is Taya Obrecht. She is the author of the international bestseller, The Tiger's Wife, a finalist for the National Book Award and winner of the 2011 Orange Prize for Fiction. Obrecht was a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree and was named by The New Yorker as one of the 20 best American fiction writers under 40. She was the 2013 Rona Jaffe Foundation Fellow at the Coleman Center for Scholars and Writers. And was a recipient of the 2016 National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship. Her most recent book is the New York Times bestseller, Inland, which she presented at Greenlight last September, about 10,000 years ago. Uh, Taya has appeared on Greenlight stage many times as both author and interviewer, and we're honored to have her with us again. She'll be speaking with our featured author, Emily Temple. She was born in Syracuse, New York. She earned a BA from Middlebury College and an MFA in fiction from the University of Virginia, where she was a Henry Hoynes Fellow and the recipient of the Hinfield Prize. Her short fiction has appeared in Colorado Review, Electric Literature's Recommended Reading, Indiana Review, Fairy Tale Review, and other publications. She lives in Brooklyn, where she's a senior editor at our favorite bookish website, Literary Hub. Her new book, The Lightness, is a stylish and stunningly precise meditation on adolescent desire, female friendship, belief, and the female body that shimmers with rage, wit, and fierce longing. Emily is going to start us off with a reading from the book, and then she'll be talking with Taya and with all of you. Emily, please take it away. Hi, everyone. And
2: first, I just wanna say thanks to Chelsea and to everyone at Greenlight for making this happen. I wish we could have been in the store, but we are making do as everyone is. And thank you to Taya, of course,
1: for being here with me.
2: I just wanna say before I read, there's no denying that it's a strange and uncertain time to be launching a book or really to be doing anything. Um, being as we are in the midst of a global pandemic and ongoing and much-needed protests against systemic racism and police violence. I just want to say that I'm so proud of my city, whose citizens continue to inspire me in their commitment to justice, and I'm so proud of so many of you who I know have been protesting and donating, calling your representatives, and educating yourselves these past few weeks. It's all of this that makes me feel as if there's a way forward, which it hasn't always felt. Um, I, I do think we will always need art as a way to keep opening and stretching our minds and our hearts, and if nothing else, as a way to soothe ourselves in difficult moments. No one should have to read a novel to understand that their neighbors are human, but we know that art does breed empathy. And therefore, I just encourage you all to read as widely and as deeply as you can. And especially to read books by people whose experiences are vastly different from your own and not because it's homework, because it's a delight. So this is just, this is all to say that with everything that's going on right now, I'm very grateful to all of you for being generous enough to spend some of your time and attention on me and on my debut novel, which is not at all timely or related to what's going on in the world, except for the fact that it is among other things, a book about power and who has it and how they got it and what they do with it. So with that said, I will read a small amount from the beginning of the book and then Taya and I will talk. It's over here. Okay. Excuse me. So I'm just gonna start, um, I'm gonna start almost, at the very beginning and then I'm going to skip ahead to um, a section that is still at the beginning but that I just doesn't exactly follow but I can't help but read because I I think it's cool. Okay. The man who drove me up the mountain in the first month of my 16th summer looked nothing like my father. He had thick black hair a thick red neck and a rosary wrapped around his rear view mirror but instead of a cross a miniature naked woman whose breasts seemed not quite to scale dangled from the coil of synthetic beads she bobbed in the flow of the air vents twisted and slapped two-dimensionally against the cheap black cab plastic and i was reminded again of the shapes of women the impossible geometry into which i was meant to fold myself i couldn't look at her for long Not because of my own monstrous reflection, which I kept catching in the rear view, also not quite to scale, I thought, but because my stomach was weak in those days. Whenever the car hit a quick dip or banked a long curve, it felt as though parts of my body, throat, liver, one thick thigh, were left hovering, separated, while the rest plummeted or swerved or bumped or whatever. It was a long drive, our trajectory relentless, even approaching the levitation center is an exercise in anti-gravity, people used to say. It's true. The center was high enough in the mountains that I felt the, thin, the, I felt the air thin out long before I even saw the main building with its paper-white stucco walls, its red-tipped roof, its enormous golden seal. The atmosphere loosened steadily as we drove. I could feel all that nice, thick, sea-level air pooling at my ankles and then abandoning me, even through the churn of the air conditioning. In the end, I spent most of the ride staring at an amoebic mole on the back of the cab driver's neck. That was my mother's wisdom. To combat motion sickness, look unwaveringly at something inside the car, something small and still. If decidedly cancerous, dark purple spreading out at the edges, no matter. Say nothing. Try not to move your eyes. I know a lot of people who can't remember themselves as teenagers. They look back and see only smoother, pinker versions of themselves, the actual feeling of those frantic years replaced by anecdote and snapshot. Oh, look, weren't we babies, weren't we thin? Remember the time we, etc. We were so bad we weren't so bad. Who can say? Me, I can't forget. I remember the girl from that summer as though she were sitting beside me, a fearful girl, but insatiable too, possessed of a fundamental savagery. Well, can we blame her? It had only been a year since her father had disappeared. As soon as I started to become nihilistic about my nausea, the cab crested through a final bend and pulled into a white sand driveway the size of a swimming pool. A woman was waiting there, wearing a white dress. She introduced herself as Magda and took my hand as though she knew me. For a moment, I tried to pull away, but she held on tight and I was unsteady enough in the thin air that I let her. By now, we were almost 8,000 feet up. I was late, Magda told me. I was the last, the very last to arrive. She led me across the driveway toward the center's main building. Paths lined with globular pink peonies scribbled out in the grass to either side, but we didn't follow any of them. Instead, we strode, hands linked, across the white expanse. The duffel bag on my shoulder felt heavy, much heavier than I remembered, and I wondered briefly if someone could have hidden something inside of it at the airport when I wasn't paying attention. A hard-packed pallet of powder, say, or a recording device, or the body of a small child. No, no. Don't be silly. That's not what this story is about, isn't it? Magda began talking, pointing out all the different buildings, the different trails, listing the daily activities, the times they'd be expected for meditation and meals. I couldn't follow any of it. Commissary, dormitory, promontory, bedtime story. I stumbled on a bright white rock. It sparked across the sand like a popping kernel. Magda only tightened her grip. She gave an overall impression of linen and salt. They say everyone faints at least once during their first week at the center before they acclimate to the altitude. Altitude is a perfect word for itself, don't you think? All peaks and valleys and places to slip. But I'd been drinking steadily from my battered canteen, the one my father had given me years before at a place very much like this one. And so I didn't fall. Besides, I was busy looking back over my shoulder. Back over my shoulder, the wind had caught in the loose white sand of the driveway driveway and was coaxing it upward into a steamy funnel. A group of strange looking girls who had clearly been installed at the center long enough for their heads to become utterly untethered from the old brown world down below, appeared as if from nowhere. They yipped and laughed and took turns running through the snow white mini twister holding hands, shrieking like children at a water park, coming out the other side with thick white eyebrows and heavy white eyelashes and red sand scratched cheeks and instant aging. Magda turned and called out to them. And after a few more furtive whoops and peals. They ran past us towards the main building, sand streaming off their bodies like water. So the girls at the center were trouble. I knew that going in. They were slick finished girls, cat eye girls, hot blood girls. They were girls who reveled. They were girls who liked boys in back seats, who slid things that weren't theirs into their tight pockets, who lit fires and did donuts in the high school parking lot. They were girls who left marks. They were girls who snuck. Girls who drank whiskey and worse by the waterfront, looking out at the smeared reflections of the streetlights, making plans instead of wishes. They were girls who ran away, who inked their own arms with needles and ballpoint pens, who got things pierced below the neck. Below the neck, ladies, can you believe it? Only whores, etc., etc. et, cetera, et cetera, is my mother never tired of telling me. They pierced two of these girls and hit and were sent out of gym class for raising bruises on the girls whose daddies brought them to school in Porsches, though some of their daddies had Porsches too. That wasn't the point. That wasn't the point. They had their problems. They had their demands. They were shoplifters and potheads, arsonists and bullies, boy crazy and girl crazy, split and scarred. They were, some of them, cruel. They were, more of them, angry. Angry at their parents, at their schools, at their congressmen, at their bodies, at the painted white lines they saw everywhere telling them no, 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 when they wanted yes. They were girls who were bored, so bored. Or they were girls who were the opposite, who were so full up of feeling that they couldn't simply do their times tables or learn their French conjugations or go to the movies on a Saturday night and discuss the relative cuteness of so-and-so's haircut and let the age-appropriate boy next to them drag a sweaty palm around and around and around their knees. They were too full up for that. They were too full up for caution. So they were girls who got caught. And they were girls who got sent away. There were girls whose mothers couldn't deal with them for one more minute, not alone, not without help, not this summer while you sit in the office all day and come home late after golf, Carl. Really, I can't. Girls whose fathers thought maybe some good clean mountain air and some good far eastern religion would cure them since nothing else had. You know the girls, I mean, because every school has them, every neighborhood, including yours, especially mine. I was not one of
3: them, of course. Not yet. That was a beautiful reading. Thanks. I love that section um, and the rhythm of that section. Um, and and your voice reading it. It's a it's a it's such a pleasure to hear your voice reading it for the first time. Um, you wrote a book, Emily. Congratulations. I know. <laughs> that is supposedly true. <laughs> it seems to be all right. Yeah. Um, Thank you to Greenlight Bookstore for hosting this event and for supporting The Lightness and for providing a place for authors and readers to connect. And thank you, above all, Emily, for letting us celebrate the launch of your debut novel. Uh, The Lightness is a book about girlhood, womanhood, our bodies, and self-understanding about Buddhism and belief and doubt about science and philosophy. It's a story of awakening and turning away. At its center lies the mystery of a lost father and the clique obsessed with the mysterious art of levitation. Um, I want to start out by asking you, there are a couple of questions that I want to ask every author that I interview because I'm wildly curious about them, and then everyone who's in the audience just has to suffer through, so, um, well, I mean, not suffer through because your answers will be unique, but if you've heard me ask the questions before, you have to suffer through, the, and I know you have, Emily. Um, so, I want to start out by asking you a version of a question with which Daisy Johnson surprised me at our London event. Uh, please tell us, if you don't mind, what kind of reader were you as a child? And actually maybe take us the tra- trajectory of your life as a reader.
2: Well, I know that
3: still in my
2: parents' house, there is a, I, I went to a, a hippie preschool up until se- about second grade, um, where they there were no grades. It was just the, the earth room and the moon room and, you know. And I still have this laminated emblem from first grade or kindergarten with a picture of me laminated onto it. And it's still on this gold ribbon. And it says, When the earth room thinks of Emily, they think of a good reader. So
1: I love that. This,
2: this has been reading for me what it has been a part of my life and identity since you know I can't I can't remember the earth room so um since before oh, I can remember room. the earth room remembers me <laughs> um i well no i have one memory of the earth room and it's when i put a pink um I probably shouldn't start this with this story, but I put a pink bead all the way up my nose, so far up my nose that they had to take it out with tweezers. So that happened in the earth room. And also I read a lot. (laughs) Yes. So I was always obsessed with books and I really became a, and, and my parent, I mean, this is thanks to my parents who raised me in a house full of books. They used to take me to Barnes & Noble and the rule was I could just buy one of anything I wanted and I was able to explore and I was able to read all their books and my dad read to me every night before I went to sleep and it would get to the point where he would be reading me books and then I would sneak into his room and read ahead uh, and pretend that I didn't know what was gonna happen because I like couldn't wait, but I still liked to be read to. So um, I think I got found out
3: with that pretty quickly um
2: but yeah and then I I remember I became a writer not because I not for not for any reason except that I thought books were so magical I mean this is so dorky I'm I'm sorry but I really thought wow I can't believe this object can do this it is absolutely magical and transporting. I wanna find a way to do this. I wanna find a way to make someone else feel the way that I have felt discovering a world that I have loved so much. So I basically made it my entire job to read books and write about them
3: at Lit Hub. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love that. I love knowing that about you. Um, Started out embarrassing what started
2: oh, no.
3: out embarrassing I think we're all, we, we were all sort of that 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 lonely child shoving beads up our noses while we while we read books in a metaphorical or or or, a, or a, an <laughs> actual sense <laughs> um so i want to ask you about this book and why and how this book came about um and i feel like something that happens when you when you ask about a book after it's been published is that um uh, it's tempting for the author to answer from the point of view of having finished it and and having discovered all the things along the way, but I'm actually really interested in the retrospect of re- retrospect of how it started for you. Um, so, how did you find your way into this project, and what was it back when you started it six years ago? Right, this took this took six years to write. So, tell us yeah. a little bit about that. Um. Yes.
2: Yeah, so, it had its origins in a short story that I wrote for Jane Allison's workshop at the University of Virginia in the spring of 2014. And I remember getting some kind of like real boilerplate piece of advice and it wasn't, I don't remember where this came from, but you know, for all of us who have ever scrolled through LitHub's many lists of advice from famous writers, et cetera, um, or everybody's list of those, there are many. I had stuck in my head this idea of, I heard somewhere and it stuck in my head that I should write something only I can write something that only I know. And because I was raised in a Buddhist family and I was raised going to this um, Shambhala center every summer with my parents. Now, I, I decided that I should try and set a story there. And I, I mean, and this place, I mean, certainly other people had been there, but it felt like something, especially because, especially because none of my friends at home ever understood it. They all called it Buddhist camp forever. They still do. Um, <laughs> which is fine. I have just accepted the fact that it's camp, um, but it well, technically was not camp, um, Shelley. And <laughs> I... So I wanted to, because it was something that I felt was like something only I had and only I knew, I tried to set a story there and, and write about it. And then when I sat down with Jane to talk about what my thesis would be for my MFA, she bullied me into writing a novel. You know, she basically was like, mm, isn't this, shouldn't you take advantage of the fact that you have someone here to help you? like, you're just gonna take the easy way out and do a collection of short stories. And I was like, I'll try, Jane. And she's like, you'll try, is that, you'll try? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, I looked at the stories I had written and I just looked at which ones, if any, I wanted to spend more time in or I thought were bigger than the stories than the 25 pages or whatever that they were. Um, And this was the story that, You know, I just wanted to go into that place. I wanted to spend time there. I thought I had more to say. I thought that there was a lot to be explored. And especially for me at the time and forever thinking about what my relationship with Buddhism is and what my relationship with, you know, my own girlhood and my own growing up is, I I thought, you know, this is a a world that I can spend some more time in. So I kept
3: working on it. Sometime, um, like we're all extremely lucky uh, that you did, and um, those of us who haven't read it yet are going to find out exactly how lucky we are after. Uh, this <laughs> and uh, and after, the um, I want to ask you about Olivia, our heroine. She's our narrator. She's sharp. She's quick-witted. Skeptical, uh, but at particular moments, deeply compassionate toward the younger self on which she's reflecting from further down the road. Can you talk a little bit about her and and about how you developed her voice? There's this real, I think we had the opportunity to to hear the music of that voice and sort of the the way that it reflects back and forth through time, um, uh, the way it's irreverence reverence um, and and also it's deep clarity on on the self. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, I, I thought a lot about how she was gonna be positioned. I, at the beginning, um in a, in very early drafts i was she was telling the story from very close i mean i think it was never present tense but there was a time when she was a teenager telling the story about like what had just happened to her mm-hmm. and i found that a little limiting i wanted her to have i wanted olivia the narrator to have the benefit of life and years and research and obsessiveness and be able to take all of that and and anxiety and anger and sadness and be able to take half of a life of that and point it all at her teenage self and point it all at this one summer so that she would be able to see it, I mean, as you say, through these different lenses um, without being trapped by it. So she both... She she's both able to make ironic little comments about herself and the stuff that she does and how dumb she is in some t- at some points and you know she's able to make little comments like oh like he didn't have Lolita on his bookshelves like that's too on the nose um, but she's not actually free of what happened so I want I really wanted to play with both of those ideas and I needed that perspective in order to do it plus it's just you know as much as I love teenagers it's you know it's more interesting to
3: hear an adult <laughs> usually well I think it lures the reader into a into a very particular kind of kinship with the with not only the adult narrator but but also with with their own teenage self and therefore the teenage self that's that's on the page you know what I mean I I think that you um there's a real sense of dread in this book um that's really but not not in like a like not not in a bad way like a very 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 deliberate way um this book is dreadful no um (laughs) um there's a there's a real sense of dread in 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 the book that that Is born out of that tension between um, the knowledge of of aftermath and um, the reader's sort of ability to interpret things on the same level that an older consciousness is able to interpret them. And so when the characters wander into these moments of danger, um, you really, really feel it uh, from this acute Adult position, um, and I think it it it's uh, it's so instrumental to the tension of the book, and also to the philosophical questions and and the emotional questions that the book is asking. Um, I want to ask you. That was a better that. answer. <laughs> Good job, thank you, Taya. It, it wasn't an answer. Um, so, <laughs> much of this book is about female friendship. <laughs> um, and, and specifically about how female friendships are places of intersection of admiration, envy, judgment, desire, um, self-doubt, uh, often self-hatred. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and about the challenges of writing youth in general? I, I feel like you've, you've already begun to speak about this, but, but I, I think um, even just the perspective of like, I find adults more interesting. I find the d- adult perspective more interesting. How difficult did that make writing about youth? It's funny because I find the adult perspective more
2: interesting in the sense that I find the adult analysis more interesting, but I find the teenage emotional landscape more interesting than the adult emotional landscape in some ways, because this is this moment where you have this unfettered, unfocused
3: desire that is exploding out of you, I love that phrasing, unfettered unfocused desire exploding out of you
2: um thank yeah i just I just paused because I wondered if that was I was gonna make a joke there, but then I decided <laughs> not to just let <laughs> not literally if you're a girl you know um, <laughs> um and I think. That, that, that moment where you all of a sudden recognize that you live in this world that is so enormous and maybe you actually have some ability to affect it and, but, but, but not quite enough. And you don't, you don't know, and you're testing the boundaries and you're also feeling everything so intensely because a lot of the times it's the first time Um, I find that emotional landscape fascinating it just has so much potential there's no jadedness there's no you know it's every moment is exciting because it's also horrible
1: yeah
2: um and I think the same is true for friendships
1: yeah
2: that you we all well I don't know if we all I maybe I shouldn't say that but I feel that many of us have had these very intense friendships at a young age and you may have lots of other friends in your life but nothing really comes close to that bond that just felt like this elemental oh my gosh i finally found one person who is somehow me and we're just like connected at the navel by just an imaginary chain and i i think it's because i mean like so many other things the first the first cut is the deepest is as uh
3: Cat Stevens would say. <laughs> Another Dorothy reference. <laughs> That's a good reference. Uh, I can tell because Dan is in the other room laughing uproariously, so. <laughs> Great. <laughs> um, no, I, I, I love that. And I think that, that being able to, um, I think that as an adult, there's such a relief of having survived that phase of life um, and it's really difficult for books to accurately capture both the thrill and the precariousness of that time. And I think that yours does it beautifully. You know, um, you can you can feel the nostalgia of that time without actually having to take the risk of going back into this into this space yourself. And so you know, you'll definitely find yourself throughout moments of the book pausing and saying, "Thank God I'm not in that place anymore," um, <laughs> which yeah. is. Yeah. Um, you spoke a little bit earlier, um, tonight and, and also in, in a recent interview about your own experiences with, with Buddhism and particularly, uh, with misunderstandings about Buddhism, your own and other people's. Um, can you talk a little bit about centering, a, a narrative within the, um, within the parameters of a, of a, of a religion, uh, to which, you used to subscribe to, we used to belong. Um, And it feels like a very, very personal thing to delve into um, in a way that that certain other personal things might not be. Um, Yeah. Which is why I asked you uncomfortably about it. (laughs) No, no, no. (laughs) No, I mean,
2: I'm just thinking about it because when I made the decision that I was gonna write about the center, which is essentially a combination of Karma Choling, which is the meditation center that I went to frequently with my family as a child. And um, what used to be called the Rocky Mountain Shambhala Center, and I think is called something else now, um, which is a similar place, but very high up in the mountains. Um, I knew I was gonna start with that place. And so I sort of had to do Buddhism. I, I, it it was part of the bargain. I didn't think that I wasn't gonna strip it um, of its essential nature. And so it actually, the book kind of taught me how to write about it um, because I didn't have an agenda starting and I, I mean, again, six years ago in the process of writing this book, I had a lot of my feelings about Buddhism have changed. And it they've changed in part by continually thinking about Buddhism, by writing about it. And you know, for instance, I started out thinking, okay, Olivia, she is going to basically have the same relationship to Buddhism that I do, which is, she grew up around it, but she never studied it. Um, so she has some knowledge that she has achieved with osmosis. And so I thought, I don't have to do any research. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's better that I don't do research because I don't want to have this artificial knowledge when I what I want to show is her, you know, having this imperfect knowledge, which is what I have. Um, I had my dad fact check this book. I sent him a I sent him a doc of all the the Buddhist stuff, and I was like, "Is this right?" Um, but it mostly was, so good for me. Yeah. Um, but in the six years since I started writing this, there have been major upheavals in the Buddhist community that my family is involved with. The you know like so many other um, hierarchical religious systems, there is one man at the top uh, who has, it turns out, has been abusing his power and uh, sexually harassing people and um, uh, you know, engaging in other kinds of misconduct. And it's hard to know what to do with that. I, I mean, I've said this before, but when I was growing up, I really thought that Buddhism was sort of separate from all the other religions, which all had problems and which all were these you know functions of the patriarchy. but Buddhism Buddhism was sort of like, well, there are no really strict rules. there's you know you can you can take what you want out of it. Um, there were plenty of people, for instance, at the Shambala Center who were Jewish or who had other religious attachments and they were able to incorporate Shambhala into their lives. So it was sort of like, it felt like a more forward thinking um, space and I still think that it is, but, um, and, and I will say that meditation practice, I find to be so useful in terms of working with my own mind and I find many of the tenets of Buddhism are still, I think are very, are valid and and valuable. Um, Which is only to say that I'm still working it out. I'm still thinking about it. And so this, writing this book was almost like you're getting a snapshot into the middle of what may be a lifetime of me working it out and thinking about it and thinking about the ways in which it fails and in which ways in which all systems of religion and all systems of power might fail and thinking about the ways in which it succeeds and it's helpful. So I don't, I guess I don't know. I, you know, I, 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 it was the very experiential process
3: for me. That's an amazing thing. Do you, do you feel, um, perhaps not wholesale but do you feel like a different person having written the book than the person who started out writing the book? Did the book itself, the process changed you on some fundamental level?
2: Certainly in, in that respect, in, in the respect, in the sense that I really had to think about how I felt about this, the, the, the only religion that I was raised knowing. Um, and I think I'm closer. For sure, that's an amazing journey. Um, also, in 2014, we had Obama, so that so lots of things have changed.
3: Yeah, turns out I want to ask you about that. That actually, I have a, I have a. I'm going to skip a question today because I want to leave time for audience questions. And I actually really want to ask you this. Um, at the beginning of our conversation, you talked about how proud of New York you are right now, proud of your community. Um, and in a recent interview in Entertainment Weekly, you talked about how you were publishing this book into two pandemics, and a long overdue global uprising. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole world is talking not only about COVID-19, but the unification into action against racial injustice, police brutality, um, prompted by the murder of civilians like George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Um, You talked about the purpose of art and stretching our hearts and minds. Um, What art has served you in this moment? And whose art have you found yourself turning to and why?
2: The person whose art I immediately return to is Octavia Butler, who I have loved for years. Um, and I admit that, even though her works have a strong sense or at least they they engage specifically with Racism and with racial justice and with an imagined future um, that may not look so great, um, even though that's true, they're also comfort reading for me because um and I've found that I need that um, it's it's been you know it's just stressful there's this ambient anxiety in the air for me, which means that it, I can only imagine how it feels for other people who are, you know, closer to, to some of these issues. I mean, I have been healthy, you know, um, I have, so yeah, so I, so my, my knee jerk reaction was Octavia Butler. Um, I have also been, um I also want to say the the photography of Carrie Mae Weems which if you guys don't know her you should her work is astounding she's another 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 artist that I have loved for many years and um <laughs> have returned to uh in in these times and I and I just I also think that I mean this is not oh by the way um, since we're doing recommendations, I just read, the, the, the best book that I read so far this year was Raven Leilani's Luster, which is coming out in August and it's a debut novel and it's really good. And if you buy my book, you should also buy her book,
3: mm-hmm. just saying.
2: Um, but yeah, I, I do think that art is really important And I also think, I mean, I'm so proud of my city because I I kind of think, and maybe this is like a dorky thing to say again, but I think the protests are art. I think when you go out and you see all of the signs, all of the clothes, all the different kinds of people together, all of the, you know, the creativity that goes into it is really astounding. And it feels to me, like I just, when I was feeling so despairing about the state of the world and thinking nothing will ever change. We're never going to get anywhere. These politicians, like we're not, there's, how can I do anything? I'm a small person. Um, It was going out into the protests and seeing all of the people who were there and gathered for the same goal and everyone smiling and shouting and working together. I mean, that's its own, this is like, that. Uh, this is dorky but that's its own kind of art too and it really I find it very moving
3: yeah. um yeah there, was, there is something incredible about about a crowd finding ways to visually and li- linguistically center around a particular idea right and like the art that comes out of that is, is yeah. like yeah. The, the even just the shape of the crowd and and the way that it um the way that it moves to protect or defy i think is is quite extraordinary um, yeah, and even the instagram art, you know it
2: it it has become its own genre of protest i mean protest art has always been a genre, but um seeing it in real time is its own kind of
3: magic for sure um I have some process questions for you. Um, here is a question from Aaron Robertson. I am going to mess up uh, the first part of it uh, because I don't know uh, how to pronounce this last name, so I'm so sorry. Um, so Aaron says, "I know you love Fleur Jaggy." Jaggy, Jeg- uh-huh. Um, Erin uh, does too. Uh, were you thinking of Sweet Days of Discipline while writing this? To what extent have campus novels or boarding school stories shaped the lightness and what draws you to the genre? Thanks, Erin.
2: Hi, also. Um, you know, I didn't actually read Sweet Days of Discipline until I was late into this book. And I do love it. Um, but I I didn't discover it, I don't think, until this was, this was already a work in progress, but I, I do love campus novels in general. Um, and they certainly inspired me. The obvious comparison is The Secret History, um, which, you know, is also a book that has this sort of like cloistered hothouse feeling, although the the project is quite different. Um, but I think that, what makes them really special is, first of all, again, it's, you're, you're always working with youth and they have this sort of like special um, intensity, but there's something about the, stru- the, the, relationship, the structure and freedom that comes in a campus setting or a camp setting, or I mean, it can be, but um, that you, you're not free. You're not an adult. So where you can sort of do whatever you want and you're not a child trapped in your parents' house. You're in this liminal space where you have to sort of adhere to these strictures, but you get to undermine them and escape from them and cut classes. Uh, Although I've never cut a class in my life. Um, And they also, I I also find that with a campus novel, it's so much easier to um, engage with sort of like to kind of like sneak literary and philosophical ideas in there which if anyone has read this book they know I love to do Um, just like sneak a little like sneak a little lesson in there Um, that that's a lot easier with a campus novel where you're already like in the realm of learning stuff
3: Um, Next question is from Katie. Um, I've been thinking a lot about the beauty of female friendship and how it shapes us in unique ways. After exploring this world for the past several years as a novelist, what do you think the female friendships offer us? What do you think female friendships offer us that romantic
1: relationships can't?
2: Well, they last forever. (laughs) Or they can. (laughs) You know, what I think female friendships offer us I think it's different friendship to friendship, but one of the things that I have found most satisfying in my female friendships is a kind of mirroring um, that I don't necessarily experience in romantic relationships. Um, I When you get to see yourself in another person and you see yourself reflected, and not only that, but maybe you see who you want to be reflected in your friend and you love them for that reason. And they might see the same thing in you in different ways. I, I really think that it can be a way to build yourself because you can take qualities of that person. And I mean, my best friend in college, um, Brie, she and I just sort of, became the same person as the years went on. And then, you know, we became adults who were different, but it, you, you just learn how to be yourself and you learn how to be close with another person in a way that I think is, can, be, can be very profound and isn't, isn't sort of complicated by the necessary um, temporariness of romantic relationships. I mean, you know, no relationship lasts until one does, and maybe then it doesn't. But friendships, just I feel like they operate on a different (laughs) wavelength. My husband's watching.
3: (laughs) Emily's husband is sitting right behind her, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Last forever (laughs) for all time. Um. So here uh but there's there's a couple of questions about buddhism i'm trying to think of 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 how to condense several into um one um while i think about how to do that uh nick wants to know following up on the cat stevens reference what's (laughs) the soundtrack for this book in brief what's the soundtrack for this book
2: oh boy um Well, I do quote, broken social scene in it, as some introverted readers might have noticed, but the soundtrack, I mean, in brief, the soundtrack is all of the songs that I was listening to and crying in about 2004. Um, So yeah broken social scene, neutral milk hotel, air, um, you know, I had grown out a little, I'd grown away from death cab at that point a little bit, modest mouths, you know, these sort of like sad sack, hyper intellectual, um, songs i i have to i always put in a plug for jonathan richmond when i talk about music although he has nothing to do with this book except for the fact that he loves to make songs out of nothing just little facts that he knows and i also do <laughs> this book yes garden state yes nice. mm-hmm. that was about that time mm-hmm. i remember i remember watching garden state open and i was like oh my god i'm gonna love this movie because that's all my favorite songs already um Again, embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs>
3: <laughs> it all there once. Yep. Uh, here's, a, here's a three-part combo question about Buddhism. Um, okay. Between them, Athena, Dwyer, and an anonymous attendee would like to know, um, what books influenced you the most? And were you informed by any Buddhist text? Um, were some of the texts that influenced you the, the 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 legacy of the Beats and and having to overcome or or, or work with that? And um, what was it like incorporating religion into a book with an audience that probably had to learn about Buddhism along the way? In three sentences or less. <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: that, those are great questions. Um, yes. So again. I wouldn't say there is one Buddhist text that um, was most influential to me, except for what makes you not a Buddhist, which is a book that my dad um, likes to hand out to young people uh, who come to him and say, I'm I'm a I want to be a Buddhist or I am a Buddhist, which basically lays out the essential tenets and was helpful for me to go back to both in thinking about. Uh, to sort of jump to the third question, both in thinking about how can I present this in a way that's accessible and simple? um, And also in thinking about like, am I still a Buddhist? Like, cause do I still believe in this stuff? I mean, it turns out I do, but as far as that book lays out, but I did, I mean, in earlier drafts, I didn't have quite as much explanation um, in like there is, a, I start. I tell the, the basically the um, Wikipedia story of the Buddha at the top of one section, um, because I got a, a note somewhere along that you know people might not know what I'm talking about actually if I just start talking about Buddhism, um, and so I I tried, I just I thought about that a lot, and I I tried to make it so that it would be accessible and give you as much as you needed to know without having to um, make it into a textbook. And I hope that I got the balance right because it can be very boring to read a textbook about stuff you don't care about. If you don't care about it. Um, As far as the beats, no, they're terrible. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes, like the beats are the reason that Westerners know about Buddhism sort of, I mean, The the Tibetan teacher who founded Shambhala was the one who brought Buddhism to the West, more or less. Um, He was the teacher of the beats uh, as well as my dad. And um, their literature definitely has informed how Westerners think about Buddhism. However, Kerouac, you know, couldn't meditate because he had knee problems and gave up Buddhism on his deathbed because he was afraid of going to hell. So, you know, he wasn't really that good of a practitioner. Um, and is this Dwar's question? On the road's bad
3: Dwyer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A question from Julian. Uh, Julian's wondering, Uh, if you could talk about coming in a novel after cutting your teeth with short stories. What have you learned about the production of longer work and the short stories couldn't teach you? Thanks and congratulations. Thanks.
2: Um, Thank you. Um, Yeah. It's a lot harder to write a novel. (laughs) Newsflash. Um, But it actually requires the same thing, at least for me, which is just getting to the end. So ha- seeing sort of, at least at least for me, you start a story with an image or an idea or a place or one thing, and then you have to just, again, this is me, but for my writing process, I just have to force myself to get to the end once, and then I'm able to go back in, and work with it and finesse it and see what works and what doesn't and see what, you know, see what I'm really doing. But I can't, I, if I don't have an end, even if the end's going to change, I get frustrated. I like stop in the sand. And the same was true with this, just in a longer form. I mean, again, the fact that I had to finish it or I was going to fail the MFA, um, meant that I just got to the end even though it was you know 140 pages or something in that first draft um and it just allows I think the the novel form just allows for more flexibility in terms of what you can include you I in a short story you have to I mean the the saying right is that if you can't Write a poem. You write a short story, and if you can't write a short story, you write a novel. Um, because the smaller you get, the more distilled and perfect everything has to be. In a novel, you can you know throw in some stuff about like Sleeping Beauty or whatever. Um, <laughs> I don't know. That's just an example. Um, <laughs> so, I, yeah. So I mean, I would say that basically it's the same. It just requires so much more time. <laughs> and so much more weaving together of probably disparate ideas whereas a short story is an expression of one strong idea or notion or feeling and a novel has to be
3: many feelings I love that distillation action um... So we have time for one more question. I believe there are five left on the board. Um, forgive me for the way that I've gone through this. I, I, I tried to I tried to touch on questions that that that, um, or I tried to condense them in a, in a way that that. Um, so if Emily had already touched on a subject, we might uh, leave those questions out. So you'll forgive me. Doing um, great, David, uh, um, David Temple. Uh, wants to know says that uh, uh, he, uh, uh, I read your book loved it what's next um, and along the same lines um, oh no a question has vanished oh, what's happening oh um, Eileen says could you please tell us whether and how your feelings about Olivia have changed over time and are you planning a
1: sequel thanks so much oh,
3: well
2: I am writing a, another book currently yay it's not a sequel, um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not totally against the idea of a sequel, um, especially if someone wants to buy the movie rights and turn it into a franchise, you know? Then, sequels ahoy. Um, but yes, <laughs> oh ahoy, God. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm working on something else, um, but it's, it's still in, in the stage where I, I can't, I, I don't know what I can say about it that's gonna be super useful as far as olivia goes you know i got less hard on her as the writing process went on i like i like her now more at the end than i did at the beginning i was really pretty brutal with her and and sort of judging her as a, as a writer and I feel that she became a human at, in the course of, of my writing her and now I love her. Um, so it, that was a nice experience actually. That doesn't happen to short stories either. You know, you don't spend quite that much time with one character. You, you really, I mean, it, it's kind of a bizarre experience. I mean, I've never written a novel before and I've never grown to know a character that I kind of thought I made up um, and see that she has her own little beating heart before, but it's satisfying.
3: That's a beautiful thing to know. (laughs) Um, Emily, thank you so much. Greenlight, thank you so much. It's been such an honor to be here with you. And thank Thank you, Taya.
1: Yeah, thank you both so much for tonight's wonderful conversation. And thank you again to everyone who virtually came out with us tonight and held space for this talk. Uh, A reminder that you can order Emily's book, The Lightness, through greenlightbookstore.com. Another reminder that tonight's event has been recorded, so if you had to miss any part of it or if you had friends, family who missed it, keep an eye out for that on our website and YouTube channel later on. Uh, thank you again, everyone. And thank you, Taya, for, for patiently holding up the book while I gave that spiel. <laughs> uh, have a wonderful evening, all of y'all, and good night.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Greenlight Bookstore Podcast. We're grateful to our production partners at Libro.fm for working with us to produce the quarantine season. Libro.fm provides access to thousands of digital audiobooks through partnerships with independent bookstores nationwide. You can purchase Libro FM audiobooks at greenlightbookstore.com. You can subscribe to the Greenlight Bookstore podcast on iTunes, download it as a free audiobook from LibroFM, or stream it on greenlightbookstore.com podcast. There you can also find past episodes and links to purchase the books discussed. The best way to support your local independent bookstore and the literary communities we serve is as simple as buying a book.